Our sermon today will be taken from Obadiah chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. This is the word of God. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Thus says the Lord. Emily, and sorry for all those really hard names of those cities. So today we're going to take a break from our uh, series through the book of John. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been going through the whole book of John, and we're, we take breaks in between that series, and do the Minor Prophets. So we're going to go back to the Minor Prophets every now and then, every four or five weeks or so. So the Minor Prophets, just a quick reminder, is the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Okay, they're, they're minor uh, because they're just shorter in length compared to the Major Prophets. And the book, the Minor Prophet, out of the 12 Minor Prophets that we're currently on, is the book of Obadiah. And we're on the last three verses of the whole book, verses 19 to 21. Now, when we read that text today, some of us probably thought, what in the world? <laughs> and I admit, I thought that too when I, when I read it. I'm like, why didn't I just combine this with my previous sermon? Why? <laughs> but anyways, we are where we are. And uh, I think it's, it's actually a very, um, it, I know it's a rather peculiar text. It's, it's, it's not probably something you're used to hearing preached on. Um, it's peculiar and it's kind of weird for, for two reasons. One, because of the context. I mean, what does... What, was the, the, what is the conquest of cities in Jerusalem 500 BC have anything to do with us today in 2017 Jakarta? So the context in itself is already so foreign, so far removed from us. But two, it's a weird literature genre as well. Not only is the context so far removed, but the literature genre of Obadiah is prophetic literature. Prophetic literature is not as straightforward as other genres in the Bible. For example, if you read the New Testament and you read the letters of Paul, that's pretty straightforward. Jesus died for your sins. Oh, okay. But this is kind of more, it's more confusing. There's all these different cities and all these different... So um, the sermon today is going to be a bit different than usual. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to try and get a biblical understanding of what our text today means. But by doing so, uh, because of the genre it's in, we're going to jump around the Bible quite a bit. It's going to almost feel like a, a general Bible overview. Okay, why? Because our text actually points back to the whole Old Testament. And also, since it's prophetic literature, it points forward to how the New Testament fulfills it. And it's impossible for us to understand what God's trying to say in this text unless we see how the New Testament fulfills this prophetic literature. All right? But at the end, I hope that we'll see just how unbelievably relevant this is for us today. Not only for God's people uh, in 2017 Jakarta, uh, but also us individually as a child of God. This text is meant to be an encouragement. And as we tread through it, we'll see that specifically it's supposed to encourage us during hard times in life, specifically when we are in our low valleys, seasons of drought. And if you aren't currently in that season, 
it still will do you good to pay attention because you will enter that season. Just give it time. And it's best for us to be immersed in these truths before we get there rather than scrounging around once we are there. So if you are in a season of drought uh, or if you're not, I pray that you will still give this your full attention because the word of God is relevant for us in any season of life. So there's three points I want us to uh, look at from this passage. One, a promise made before this time. Two, a king that entered into time. And three, a people humbly encouraged at all times. A promise made before this time, a king that entered into time, and a people humbly encouraged at all times. Pray with me, and then we'll begin with our first point. Father, we come to you knowing that unless you, um, in your spirit, make these words effective in our minds and in our hearts and have it translate into our actions, uh, it won't be effective. So we beg you now, as we dig deep into your word, that you be gracious to our minds and that you be gentle to our hearts and that you would encourage it, whether through reshaping some paradigms we may have about the promises you've made um, or, or by rebuking us in how we have expected things from you that you might not have promised in your word. Whatever way it is, help us know that you mean it for good and that in it and through it we can come out as um, bolder children of God, if you so will to do in your passage today. Jesus, name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one. A promise made before this time. This time, I mean the time of Obadiah, the time when it was written. Um, so when we read this text, it seems like God in Obadiah, in verses 9 to 21, is making a promise, right? To his people in the Old Testament, who is the nation of Israel, um, and his promise is that his people will overtake all these cities that have all these weird names. That's the promise. You will take over these cities. To understand what it's all about, first we have to remind ourselves of the context that the book of Obadiah is in. What is the book of Obadiah about? Okay, just a quick, quick, brief reminder. It's a short book. only has one chapter. That's why there's no Obadiah chapter one. It's just Obadiah verse because it's just one chapter. So... It's a short book, there's 21 verses, um, and the whole book is actually a word of warning to a country named Edom. If you remember in the previous uh, sermons, if you were with us, um, Israel at this time, or God's people in the Old Testament, they were destroyed by a country named Babylon in 586 BC, around then. And Edom, so Israel destroyed by Babylon, Edom was a neighboring country. Edom was Israel's neighbor. They actually, if you look back in Genesis, have the same lineage from, from Israel as well. So not only are they neighbors, they're also family. Now, what's the expectation you would have to a neighbor or to a family member if you are in trouble? To help, right? But instead of helping, Edom exploited Israel. Instead of serving and, 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 and um, helping them out in their time of trouble, Edom stole from Israel when they're at their weakest. They mocked Israel when they're at their weakest. And if you read Obadiah, um, the, the previous verses, you'll see that they even went as far to um, capture some of the people that were running away from Babylon. They captured those people and sold them to slavery. Human trafficking. 
This is what Edom did to Israel. So the whole book of Obadiah is a word of warning. God is giving Edom. If you uh, just take one verse, verse 4, um, uh, though you build high as an eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Not a bad verse to keep in our hearts. But now, at the end of the book, in our passage today, the tone of the book changes a little bit. It, it, it changes from being a word of warning towards the country of Edom, and now to a word of promise to the nation of Israel. The promise of Israel retaking all these cities that was captured by Babylon. God's people, who at the time who were defeated, beat down, weak, helpless, in a season of drought, are being made a promise. You will, at the end, have victory. You see this in verse 19 to 20. One day, Israel, God's people, will once again possess the promised land. Israel, that Babylon destroyed. That's what all these cities are. They're, they're either cities in Jerusalem uh, or cities around uh, Jerusalem at the time. Now, there's a bunch of names in verses 19 to 20. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them and go to the detail with all of them because that would just not be too fun for now. Um, so what I'm going to do is briefly talk about some of them. I'm just going to ask you to stay with me. I know it can get kind of technical, but just stay with me. I think at the end, unless we're convinced that this is actually what the Word of God says, it's not, it's not going to hit us uh, as, as much. So let, let's start um, with verse 19. So the first promise, the first city God said they will regain uh, from Babylon is uh, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Uh, without getting too much detail, Negev uh, is a part of South is- Israel. And um, they will take Mount Esau. Mount, Mount Esau is another way to say Edom, the, the country that exploited Israel, their, their neighbors. They will overtake them. Um, and then after that it says, Sephelah will possess the land of the Philistines. Sephelah is in western Israel. And it says that they'll take over the Philistines. The Philistines were originally also part of Israel. If you read all the way back to Exodus chapter 23, Numbers chapter 34, and Joshua chapter 15. Okay, so all these cities that once belonged to Israel will be taken over by Israel. It will be regained. The lands of Ephraim and Samaria also be taken back. Ephraim was also once Israel's territory. You look back to Isaiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, and Samaria was once Israel's capital, which is interesting. Historical records show that they were conquered um, by Assyria in 722 BC. This was also lost at one point. Last one, last two, uh, verse 19. Benjamin, which is a tribe of Israel, shall repossess Gilead. Gilead also once a part of Israel's territory. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, specifically verse 8 to 11. Okay? So all these weird cities with all these weird names, is all God is saying is, hey, I know you lost them. And I know that right now you are not in a good season in life. But you will have victory at the end. You will regain them. Now verse 20 continues... The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. Uh, And the Canaanites, or the land of Canaan, uh, which is actually the first land that Israel received from the Lord. Uh, You see this in the book of Joshua. So all these promises, all these cities being taken over. Why, Why is this important? And why does this matter to us in 2017, Jakarta, today? Well, it mattered for them back then, of course, because it's a promise that they will one day regain the victory. They will one day see a fulfillment of the promise that God made. But for us today, it points to a greater reality. Because this promised land 
that God once promised Israel was not just a promise God made for his people in the Old Testament. It's a promise God made for us also today. Okay, we're going to continue this biblical overview, okay? How does, this, um, how does this promise that God made to his people in the Old Testament apply to us today? Okay, go back with me all the way to Genesis, the first book in the Bible. In the book of Genesis is actually when you first see God make this promise. To Abraham, I think I have the verse up there. Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel, was called by God to leave his country called Ur. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, which is Canaan. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Where was this land God called Abraham to? We eventually see Canaan. Abraham himself didn't reach Canaan, so we're still in Genesis. Okay, God called Abraham to leave his home country to this promised land. On the way, Abraham didn't himself get there. He, he died in the journey, but he had children. He had descendants. You probably heard of some of these names. Isaac, uh, Jacob, Esau, right? Jacob, Isaac's, uh, Abraham's descendant, Abraham's uh, grandchildren, rena- was renamed Israel by God in Genesis 32. So let's, let's take everything away. God called Abraham out of Ur to a promised land. He died midway. He had children. His, his descendants, one of them was named Israel. And Jacob, who was named Israel, had 12 children, who then became the 12 tribes of Israel. And they still continued their journey, holding fast to God's promise. And this growing tribe, known as the people of Israel, continued. Um, but on the way to Canaan, to this promised land, they went through a series of events, including, in Genesis, a famine, which is what led them, as a lot of you know, to Egypt. So they landed in Egypt, and eventually they're enslaved by the Egyptians for 430 years. Now we enter into Exodus, out of Genesis. That was a brief overview of Genesis, into Exodus. Okay. Um, um, at this time of, of, of 430 years of slavery, throughout this whole time, God did not forget his promise he made to his people all the way back in Abraham. Let's just read God's words to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. God, this is Israel, God's people who came out of uh, uh, Abraham and now enslaved in their way to the promised land for 30 years in, in slavery. God speaks to them and says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I also established my covenant, which, I mean, if you boil down the word covenant, I guess you can say it means promise. I also established my covenant, my promise with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold, hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant, my promise. I know you're midway, you're not there yet, but I remember the promise I made to Abraham, and I will fulfill it. God, God then uses Moses to free Israel out of Egypt. You guys know that story, I'm sure. Moses then died. His successor, Joshua, finally, in the book of Joshua, entered into Canaan, this promised land. They conquered it from the Canaanites, which were pretty evil people, by the way. They took it over from them. And they're here, right? The promised land, finally, Canaan. 
Happily ever after, David became king, then Solomon. End of story. Right? Not quite. That's what we thought would be. Fast forward a few centuries to our passage today in Obadiah. What happened to this promised land? Destroyed. Taken over by Babylon. Can you just imagine what the Israelites must have felt at this time? Can you just hear them groaning? You promised. You told me this is ours. Why would you take it away? Why would you break your promise? Which brings us to our passage today. God saying, I did not break my promise. You will gain the promised land that I promised you. Now you can imagine how they must have felt after hearing God's promise in Obadiah 19 to 21. Oh, great. Awesome. We will take it over again. We will have our promised land again. Okay, great. We trust you, Lord. But then, it never really happened. <laughs> I mean, they kind of came back and rebuilt it a little bit, but then the Romans took over, and they never restored it to their original glory. I think the Romans took over in 30 AD, if I'm not mistaken. They never restored it to back in how it was in Davidic days, in Solomon's days. And now again, if you're an Israelite, you're just being thrown back and forth. Hope, defeat, hope, defeat, hope, defeat. And now, if I were them, I know I would feel pretty discouraged. God made a promise, and he didn't keep it. And maybe some of us might be feeling a bit like that today. You might be in a season of life where it feels like God broke his promise to you. Where it feels like God is unfaithful to you because currently we're in a hard time in life for whatever cause it may be. Now, the first reaction I know I usually have in such seasons is maybe similar to the Israelites. Frustration, discouragement, maybe even a bit of cynicism. And when we read some of God's promises in the Bible that he's made to us, we feel this sense of cynical, like, I, don't, I just don't trust that. Look at my life. Here are some... Uh, Popular promises God made that probably a lot of us know. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And then you look at your life and you say, Really, God? Is that your promise? Because it doesn't feel like it right now. Proverbs 28, 25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. I know you say that, Lord, but my bank account would disagree. Look at it. You have broken your promise. In a season of drought, it's so tempting to think that God is not faithful to me. He's abandoned me. He's not kept his promises. But what our text asks us to do today is consider another option. I want us to consider that perhaps it's not God who broke his promise, but perhaps, just perhaps, we are the ones who have misunderstood what exactly it is God promised. What is his plan for welfare and future and hope and enrichment? What is that ultimately referring to? So right now, before we move on to our second point, I want to ask all of us, including myself, as best we can, I know it's not easy, as best we can, reach, dig deep down and put on the shelf, put on a shelf, 
our understanding of what God's promises to us may be. Whatever we think God's promise is to us, pick it up, put it on a shelf, and just for the next 20 minutes, let's try and let the Word of God redefine what it is actually that God has promised to us. I'm not asking you to discard it just yet. Just put it on a shelf. And if you disagree with me at the end, you can pick it back up. But for now, just leave it there and let's move on to verse 21 to see what it is actually God is promising us. Point number two, the king that entered into time. So at this point, we find God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, frustrated, angry. Why? Because the promise God gave them of a land, of a nation, of a kingdom, right? That's what he said to Abraham, right? I'll give you a land. That's what he said to Moses, I'll free you. That's what he said in Obadiah, I'll give you this land. Is not fulfilled. And they're frustrated. Why? Because based on their definition of redemption and victory, based on their understanding of what God's deliverance looks like for a specific ethnic race unto a specific physical land, their understanding of when God should deliver them, which is now, and their understanding of how God should deliver them, which is through military might, none of that was fulfilled. Their understanding of what God's deliverance looks like, when God should deliver them, and how God should deliver them was not fulfilled. That's why they're frustrated. Similar to how sometimes I feel frustrated today. My definition of God's deliverance is not fulfilled. But in verse 21, God is saying to Israel, to his church today, God's people, all those who are in Christ, perhaps consider that you might have misunderstood my promise. Consider that your definition of deliverance, of victory, when it will happen, how it will happen, may not be what I have actually promised. So what did God say in verse 21? Let's talk about this confusing verse real quickly. Verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, saviors can be translated to deliverers or mediators, in-betweeners, they shall go up to Mount Zion. It's kind of confusing, but just real quick, God here is reminding Israel of the pattern of deliverance God has used all throughout the Old Testament to deliver God's people. This whole time, from Abraham up to now, God has used saviors, deliverers, mediators to guide and deliver his people, meaning that God, all throughout the Old Testament, has chosen one man as a representative in between him and his people. Saviors, mediators. I mean, we, that's been the pattern, the Old, Old Testament. We just read about it. First, God used Abraham. That's his in-betweener, right? That's his mediator. And then Isaac to communicate. And then Jacob. And then Moses, the one person to deliver his people. And then Joshua. And then if you read the book of Judges, 12 Judges, every single one, uh, that God has used them to deliver his people people. David, there's, there's always one person in between God and his people to deliver them. That's why saviors here is plural. Not saying that there's many saviors uh, like many Jesuses, but, but, but it's referring to the pattern in the Old Testament of God always using mediators, always having a person in between him and his people in which this final victory shall happen. So verse 21 is really saying God will deliver his people, one, into his land, two, his promised land, under his sovereign rule, 
3, in accordance with the pattern in the Old Testament that's been true this whole time, through saviors, through mediators, through somebody in between. His people, his land, under his rule, according to, uh, through his mediator, which is, by the way, is the definition of what God's kingdom is in the Old Testament, um, as written by a uh, Westminster Seminary professor named Johnny Gibson. God having a people living in a land under his rule through his representatives or savior or deliverer. Stick with me. We're getting close, okay? We're getting close to see what God is actually promising to his people. So let's, let's put ourselves, ourselves in, in the shoes of the Israelites at the time. And in this time of expectation, of waiting, okay, great, we're going to have a mediator. This pattern that you've used throughout the Old Testament, that is the same way in which we will then regain this promise. Okay, we're waiting for him. Good, expectation. They're, they're looking forward to them. And at this time of expectation slash frustration slash confusion, but a bit of hope, in this time came a man. He came bearing a message. And he said in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he prays in a really weird way. We just prayed it, actually, earlier before the sermon. He prays like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who is this guy that's speaking about God's coming kingdom? Is this the mediator? Others have proclaimed him as the king. The Savior of not only Israel, but of the world. John Baptist saw him. We just went through our sermon through the book of John. In John chapter 1, verse 21, uh, 29, John the Baptist saw him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nathaniel interacted with him, and in John chapter 1, verse 49 says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The Samaritan villagers in John chapter 4 says, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Who is this man? We read in the New Testament, his name is Jesus. What in the world does this mean? What is Jesus claiming about himself? What are these people claiming about him? What is the whole New Testament claiming about Jesus? Connected to Obadiah 19.21 right now. Saying, you're awaiting for a victory, right? God's people. You're awaiting for a deliverer. You're awaiting for a mediator that will take you into the promised land. In the same pattern that the Old Testament did, which is through a mediator, Christ has come and said, I am he. The time has come. The promised mediator is here. This is what the whole New Testament is about. Even in our assurance of pardon that we read in our liturgy earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 to 6, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator, Savior, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. You see the connection here? And now we see all the Old Testament actually points to Christ. Um, Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 25 to 27. Stick with me a little longer. Jesus saw his disciples uh, after his crucifixion and resurrection and said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, verse 27, pay t close attention. I'm beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the guys we just talked about earlier. 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. All of this was about me. All of this was pointing to me. What's even more interesting is that in the Old Testament, all the mediators that we've said so far, Abraham, Moses, David, all the, in the New Testament, we actually see Jesus specifically being the fulfillments of these people. Let's look at three of them, Abraham, Moses, and David. Abraham, Galatians 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who, hanged, who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. The promise God made to Abraham might come to the non-Jews so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Who was the fulfillment of Abraham? Jesus. Moses, Acts 3, 20, The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. I say this all the time because this is my favorite Old Testament imagery of Jesus. What did Moses do? He is one character that freed God's people from the slavery of Egypt unto the promised land. What did Jesus do? He's God's mediator who freed God's people out of the slavery of our sin into the true promised land. Moses was all about Jesus. Saying in Samuel 7, uh, David, uh, talking, uh, this is David speaking. This is in the Old Testament. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God, sorry, this is God speaking. I will rise up uh, your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, David? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God's saying through the children of David, this eternal king will come. What is the most popular name for Jesus in the book of Matthew? Son of David. See, this here redefines everything we know about God's promise. What did he actually promise you? What is this prosperity he talks about? What is this enrichment? What is this hope he's giving you? The Israelites, the Israelites remember that they had their own definition of what deliverance looked like, how it should happen, when it should happen. They thought God's promise looked like ethnic Israel being delivered into a physical piece of land. They thought it was supposed to happen in their time, and they thought it was supposed to happen through military might. But yet God, in verse 21, through Obadiah, as it points to Christ, is saying to them, and is saying to us today, for a second, put your understanding of what my deliverance looks like, how it's supposed to happen, when it's supposed to happen, through what it's supposed to happen, put it on a shelf real quick. And whenever you're frustrated and disappointed at me because something in life isn't going according to your definition of what my deliverance should look like, it'll be good to ask yourself, is that what I've actually promised you? Are you disappointed because I've broken my promise? Or are you disappointed because you've approached me assuming I've promised you these things that I never did? And I'm so guilty of this. I do this all the time, and I don't think I'm alone. Every time I wave my fist to God because he didn't give me something in life that I hoped for, it's so easy for me to fall into saying, you must not love me. You must not care for me. And when I say and think about things like that, at the core of it, I'm misunderstanding God's promise. 
Every time we associate God's faithfulness only when good things happen to us, but when bad things happen to us, it's as if God isn't faithful. At the core of it, it's me misunderstanding what it is God has promised. Or it's even trickier. I fall into this all the time. Uh, Something bad happens, and I say, when God closes a door, he will open a window. As if if he doesn't open a window, he's not faithful. Because he's faithful, he must open a window, right? He must fix this, right? He's promised. God's saying, I've never promised that. What if I never open a window? Am I then less faithful to you? Have I then broken my promise to you? A window usually referring to job opportunities or other opportunities. Now, don't get me wrong. It's easy to hear all this and think that I'm saying when you ask God for a job and career or health or financial gain or anything like that, it's easy for you to think that I'm saying um, you're asking God for too many things. For, you're asking God for too much. He hasn't promised you that. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you demand from God those things, you are asking him for way too little. That is so much less than what he's actually promised you. What has he promised his people? An eternal kingdom where you'll have an eternal communion with this king. How? By he himself condescending as man in the person of Christ, our Savior, and dying for us. Not just for ethnic Israel, as our verses said earlier, but the Savior of the world. For all who would place their trust in him, all ethnicities, all cultures, all nations, not just for a physical piece of land, as his prayer and as the prayer we prayed earlier says, but thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. This is the promise your king has made to you. Not financial gain, but that he would become poor for you, that you may have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty on the cross, might become rich spiritually. Not for earthly reputation, but he's promised that he will empty himself of any reputation for you. He doesn't care about all that. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what he's promised. God is saying here to his people through this text, Sure, pray for a job, pray for career advancement, pray for health. That's fine. Uh, Ask me these things. But if my answer to your prayer is no, will you still trust me? Will you trust that I'm still faithful to you? That I have not abandoned you? That I've not forgotten the promise I've made to you all the way back in Genesis? Or will you so quickly wave your fist at me and call me unfaithful? Because if we do, if we hold fast to his definition of deliverance, his definition of salvation, according to what he has actually promised in his word instead of our own definition, you know what will happen? Last point. We will be a people humbly encouraged 
at all times. Okay. So how can we know whether or not our definition of deliverance and salvation is according to God's definition of deliverance? There's, there's a lot of people in this room, and many of us maybe have different definitions of what God's deliverance should look like, and we don't have the time to address all of them. But what we can do is talk about the one common theme that I think I see uh, that will be similar to all of our, including my own, wrong definition of deliverance. Uh, I think this is a common theme that we can find in, in all of them. And that common theme is this. All of our misunderstanding of God's deliverance centers, in, in its core, it's based on a misunderstanding of who it is God delivers us from. Our misunderstanding of God's deliverance, can we can see commonality in all of that by our misunderstanding of who it is and what it is God actually delivers us from. The Israels thought that God was going to deliver them from who? From the Babylons, Babylonians, from the Romans, right? From forces out there. That's who God's going to deliver me from. Um, uh, in the New Testament, uh, when people interacted with Jesus, you remember Peter? Uh, he said, Lord, uh, send fire down now and burn these people. He thought the enemy was them. And again, Peter, uh, when, God was, when Jesus was being captured to be crucified, he had a sword and he cut the person's ear and he tried to defend Jesus. And Jesus said, put your sword down. Do you not think I have a legion of angels in my authority? I'm doing this in my own will. See, a misunderstanding of, of, of God's deliverance is based upon us thinking that he's delivering us from the forces out there. We see this everywhere in, in, in our culture today. Um, when athletes, when they say, we can do all things through him, what's that referring to? We can beat the opponent, right? We'll be delivered from, um, uh, from losing against this force out there. In business, when we um, pray to prevail and, 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 and you know, we, we make God's promise all about having a good career, having our businesses thrive. What we're really saying is we're saying, deliver us, God, from our competitors. Deliver us that we may be the clients of this company or that we may have a better product or we may beat the forces out there. Deliver us. Or political parties, which is easily misunderstood. Um, when we say God will win, we trust God that he will win, and when political parties say that, what are they really, to the core of it is saying, our political party will beat that political party, right? God's deliverance is based on delivering us from a force out there. So that's the core of it. Now, this can be remedied by seeing how it was actually that God delivered his people. He didn't deliver his people. This king did not come down with a sword. This king did not come down with a military army from heaven. He came down embracing a cross. This is unbelievably significant. It tells us of who it is God is actually delivering us from. What are the evil forces God is delivering us from? Now, if he did it by military might, which is what the Israelites expected, God will defeat them through military might, yes, then the danger he's saving us is from the evil forces, the dangers out there. But if the method of deliverance is not by killing, but rather by dying for the sins of his people on a cross, you know what this tells us? This tells us the evil God must save us from is not out there. It's in us. 
what we must be delivered from is the consequences of our own sin. That's why he did not come down bearing a cross, but by, embrace, by bearing a sword, but by embracing a cross. That he may save you, not by defeating someone out there, but by saving you from your own sin, by dying for you. We saw him misunderstand his promise and demand things from him he's never promised. And we wave our fist at him when he doesn't deliver us what we think he has promised us. And we doubt his love every time he doesn't fit into our definition of deliverance. A God daily misunderstood and often despised by his people. A God who receives waving fists all day. To them, uh, to, and to us, and to, to Israelites, to God's people, he says, I love you still. And I know you misunderstand my promise a lot. And I know you wave your fist at me. But I will remember my promise that I've made to you. And I will die for you still. And I will deliver you. I remember the covenant I've made with your forefathers, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with Joshua, with David, that you will, my people, enter into my kingdom under my loving rule in a victory achieved through my mediator, Jesus Christ. So now let's end with a few implications. It's, it's tempting for us to think, okay, great. God has done it all in Christ and we've, earned our, we've, we've won our victory, so we have nothing else to do today. Right? Uh, there's nothing left for us to do. All we need to do is just wait for this, uh, for this kingdom come. Now, that's not, no, that's not, that's not the implications here. Let's talk about a few implications. I think there's, there's four I want to talk about, and then we'll end. First, if scripture is true, that our only way for salvation, that our only God, that our only mediator to him is this Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, as the New Testament reveals. If that's true, the first implication here then is to receive him. Receive what he has done on the cross for you. He's taken upon himself the consequences of your sin, of my sin. He's reconciled us to him. Stop thinking we can save ourselves by doing whatever it is we think is most pleasing to God. No. The credit and glory and majesty of all of redemptive history may go to him and him alone through Christ. Two, if you receive Christ, this means that you have an allegiance to a king, the king of kings. His commands, his will, is what dictates our lives. Not our own will, not whatever can advance us more in expense of obeying him, but he is our only and ultimate allegiance. Three, this means also, if all of the scripture is true, we are free to risk for him. This is related to the implication number two, where I just called you, or the scripture just called us to obey our king above all, all things, although it's risky to trust him and obey him. And what will keep us going is, is knowing that our victory has been won in Christ. If you don't know that you've won, you're not going to risk that much. Let's, let's give an example. Um, if I went back to, what is it? When did Apple go public? 1960, I don't know, 8, 8 I don't know, something, 1970, something like that. Um, if, I go, if I go back with all of you, or if I go back and when Apple went public, and I, and I told the people then, hey, I know in the future Apple will win. 
or I might have, I'm, I might have offended some people by saying that, but I know in the future uh, that their stock will rise really, really high. So I'm calling you right now to trust me and invest everything you have because you'll win. The only, you'll only do that if you trust my words. You see, God is saying, I've won. I've won. And you're partakers of this victory. Risk. Put it all in there. I have won it for you. Lastly, you'll be freed from destructive cynicism. When something bad happens, um, I'm not saying you won't be cynical when something bad happens. I'm cynical all the time when something bad happens. I know it's really hard not to do that. But here is an encouragement. If scripture is true, and, and if the promise he's made to you of eternal victory with him, in him, through him, has been solidified when he died for you, then when something bad happens to you, even if you might not know what the exact reason is, you at least will know what the reason isn't. You might not know why this is happening, but you will know what the reason isn't. And it isn't because he's unfaithful. Just look at the cross. It isn't because you're out of his sovereign plan. Just look at the cross. It's not because you're, not, you're unimportant. Look at the cross. And it's not because you're not loved. I don't know what the reason is, but those are the reasons what it isn't through the cross. Implication one, receive him, the only mediator. Number two, set your allegiance to him, to no one else and nothing else, ultimately to him. Number three, although it's hard to set your allegiance to him and it's risky to obey him, be encouraged that your victory has been won. So risk. Implication number four, during the low valleys in life, through this redemptive plan, through this cross, through this promised fulfillment, be encouraged. Although you may not know what the exact reason is, you at least know what it isn't. And it isn't because he doesn't love you. Just look at that cross. Thus, we will be a people that is humbly encouraged at all times. And I pray that we now have a clear understanding of what it is, what he has promised us, and what right we have to demand from him, what we have a right to demand from him. It's an eternal kingdom with a king who loves us so much he would rather die on a cross than spend eternity without us. So now live for him, risk for him, arrange all that you are according to him and find a consistent joy in him that does not fluctuate depending on how high or high-low a particular season of life may be at a particular time. Find strength in that. Find joy in that. And get up. And here, remember what we've prayed in our Lord's Prayer. Continue representing your Heavenly Father. Hallow His name. Be part of His kingdom come, as we promised in the Old Testament, by doing His will on earth that all of the earth may be as it is in heaven. Even if doing so may risk you having to be content with only daily bread. You can risk because your victory has been solidified. Your debt has been paid. So forgive others as he has forgiven you. And pray to be delivered from temptation, yes, but if you fall into it, remember that he has delivered you from evil not by carrying a sword to save you from evil out there, but by embracing a cross and save you from your own sin. For his is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, what a promise that you have entrusted unto your people. What a promise that you've made to us. What a covenant. What a commitment. And your promises in Christ are all yes. I will give you this victory. I will give you this promised land. I will give you this kingdom. I will give you myself, this mediator, who will become your savior. And that now, through him, we can be partakers of this victory. Father, work in our hearts that we may receive him. The only way creature can find true joy in a relationship, in a loving, hopeful relationship with their creator. And now we see all of the promises in your Bible under this bigger redemptive historical context. And that when you call us, we'll have victory and prosperity and enrichment and hope for tomorrow, we look at this promised kingdom and that no matter what happens, as your word says in Romans 8, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor height nor depth nor things present nor future nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This victory is ours through your blood. May we now be encouraged to live our lives humbly, faithfully, riskfully for our King who has won for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.